All right, it's good. It's good. We got Holy Spirit blue in here. Love it. Holy Spirit blue. I remember one retreat. Uh, where's Where's the Victoria Callwood people at? Yeah, one. <laughs> I know there's more than just you know, but I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, I remember chatting with James Berkey and the setting for the blue was like setting number five on like the lighting board. So it was like Holy Spirit five is what we like, we called it. Like, it's funny. You know what, Joe? I like that. See, you know what? That's a perfect segue because when you can razz somebody, when you razz somebody, that means there's a level of trust, right? Like there's a level of trust if you can razz somebody and they don't get offended right away. And so I actually want to start with a story of trust. So when I was a student here, uh, we, I had trust issues uh, while I was a student here. Trust issues with my closest friends. So roommates, these guys that I loved and who loved me, but we all had trust issues with one another. And unfortunately, the reality was uh, at that time, and I know it's still somewhat prevalent amongst dudes right now, is uh, when you do a greeting, you would do a little, like, tag. Like on, like, you know? Right? Inappropriate, I get it. But it was this, like, tag that you'd be like, hey, oh, hey, nice to see ya. Right? Like that. And we had trust issues with one another because this became this thing between, like, close buddies. I encourage you, don't do it. Uh, it's nice that I don't see that today. Um, what I do see is a lot of like, like just little taps on the bum, <laughs> which sometimes is a bit too much as well. Just saying. <laughs> you know what? I brought oranges for that reason again, because I had so much fun. And I got Christmas oranges this time. <laughs> So who said amen? Who was it? Justin. Yeah. Okay, great. (laughs) Okay, so I had these trust issues. So we created this fraternity on campus, this group of guys. And we had three rules in our fraternity that you could not break. The rules were you couldn't like tag each other like that. Uh, There was no mama jokes. And we had a secret handshake that you weren't allowed to share with anybody else except those in the fraternity. And so because of these trust, trust issues, we created this fraternity. So who here thinks that they have some sort of level trust issue with people on campus and their friends? You guys trust your friends that much? Wow. Good for you. Well, hey, I think trust is a big thing. I think trust is a great thing. And we have a savior in which that we can trust in. Amen. Come on. And when you trust in Jesus, I gave this quote a couple weeks ago. When you trust in Jesus, what is true of him becomes true of you. When you trust in Jesus, what's true of him becomes true of you. Turn your notifications off. Great. Good for you. All right. (laughs) Don't worry. Give him the smallest orange on that one. (laughs) It's bruised. (laughs) 
<laughs> I didn't check the box before I bought it. I just bought it. Hey, when we trust in Jesus, when we put our trust in him, our life becomes his. Our life becomes his. We're given a new name. We're given a new identity. And we're also given freedom. We're called to live free. But how often do we still live like we're trapped? And this is what Paul was talking about in Galatians. That we no longer live under the law, but we live under the Spirit. That we have freedom now as we live and walk in step with the Spirit. That we are no longer under the law. But the Spirit, but there are so many Christ followers who spend a lifetime trying to achieve something that Jesus has already achieved for them. So this fruit of the Spirit, this sermon series in step that we've been going through, right? Fruit of the Spirit, what does it mean? God is concerned about the internal side of you, right? That, that depth, the inside. Because the health of what's on the inside will showcase itself as fruit on the outside. Retweet. <laughs> Who uses Twitter still? Anybody? <laughs> Really? I do not. I was all for it, but not anymore. Did somebody say MySpace? Who said MySpace? Justin! Buddy! You get another orange. Oh, that was a bad throw. Bad throw. That one's now Bruce as well. Justin. Okay. God is concerned about that inside, right? He is concerned about what he's doing in you and what he's doing through you. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. He's concerned about what he's doing in you and what he's doing through you. So this fruit of the Spirit is who you are and it's what you do. It's the words that you say. It's the things that you do. These characteristics, these traits reflect on what the internal is going on. And so in Galatians 5, he's talking about love and joy and peace. And these are the reflections of the internal state of your life. Same thing in the previous couple sentences about anger and discourse and jealousy and envy and fits of rage is the fruit of what is taking place on the inside. And so as we talk about this in step with the Spirit, we're no longer under the law, but that we are to walk in step with the Spirit in the freedom of what he gives us, of new life, of new breath, right? God has breathed life into us, but he gives us this fresh breath, this new life as a new creation, once again, born again because of what Jesus has done as we accept that into our life. And so here now today, we walk in step with that. We walk in step with the Spirit. And we do so in our relationships. We do so in our community. The fruit of the Spirit does not exist if there was not community prevalent in your life. To be kind, to be full of joy, to be faithful, to be gentle doesn't exist without community around us. Same thing, too, on the other side. The anger, the envy, the jealousy, the sexual immorality doesn't exist if it wasn't for community. And so we need to talk about community. We need to talk about friendships, relationships, dating relationships, 
fiancés, marriages, all that is taking place on the hill here. And uh, so we started out of uh, a couple weeks ago out of the book of Genesis, talking about a story about a guy named Joseph. Who said Joseph? Come on, Bailey, my man, right there. Okay. And then Kim talked about who? The second week. Who said Moses? I heard it over here. Eli. Watch out, Seth. You know what? It's these blue lights. My depth perception is way off because that rolled like four chairs back. (laughs) And so our goal with this series, like my hope for this series, as we only got tonight and then next week, and that's the end of it, is not that we're just going through the fruit of the Spirit. Because I believe you have somewhat of an understanding of what love means. I know we can all grow in our understanding further, but I think there's a base that's there. I think there's a base in understanding of what, like, gentleness is. Kim, I missed the the week that you're speaking, but the conversation about self-control since then has been really encouraging. And I've heard it was one of the best sermons on, like, self-control and relationships. So, awesome. Well done. Yeah, seriously. And so there's this, I believe, I believe in you guys. I believe there's already some understanding. I believe there's already some knowledge. I think there's already some wisdom in these areas. And so not that we just need to talk about it again, but we want to talk in a way that will inspire to live those things out. To take it from this head knowledge to this true personal devotion and desire to live out in our lives. And a way to inspire people is through story. The whole Old Testament is through story that God is inspiring his people, leading his people, teaching his people, painting these pictures of what's to come, these promises from the law and the prophets about a coming Savior. And these stories... And so I want us in in this context of community, context of relationship, context of friendships, to be inspired by these stories of Joseph, of the king and his beloved. Today we're going to talk about Ruth. We're going to talk about a guy by the name of Boaz. Come on. Oh, yeah. So I, I got to be honest. Whoa. My tablet just shut off. Uh, I used to get really confused with these names, Naomi and Ruth, and the order of them, because my mother-in-law's name is Ruth, and my sister-in-law is Naomi. So Rebecca has a sister named Naomi, and her mom is Ruth. And so I would always, when I think of the name Ruth, I just think of a mother figure. Like, that's just what I go to. And in this story, it is reversed. So if I mix it up, Please have grace for me, okay? So we're going to talk about this story of Ruth. Man, I love this story. I love this story. It's such a beautifully written story. It's both historical and symbolic, this book. Uh, About 25% of the way through your Bible. I encourage you guys, if you got your Bible here, to go to it and stay there. Uh, If you got your phone, get your Bible app open And stay there as we're going to work our way through it together tonight. Uh, We will have the scripture up on the screen. 
But uh, I'd love to have you open it right there in front of you too. So it symbolizes Christ and his work in redeeming the lost world. Boaz is this picture of this kinsman redeemer, this Christ. And we're going to get to that in a second. So don't jump ahead on the scripture just yet. Ruth is this picture of lost humanity, without hope, helpless, in need of someone, in need of a redeemer. And according to Jewish tradition, um, Samuel is possibly the author. There's no for sure, like, stating on who the author is. Uh, But we do know that they were a skilled, skilled storyteller. Like, just so skilled, and we're going to see here in a in a minute. It's one of the most beautiful short stories ever written. It provides this transition from when Israel was in confederation with the tribes to this like authority of kingship and this family lineage and the descendants. Uh, and even at the last sentence of the book, it gives us lineage uh, up to King David. And so it was written post-anointing of King David, because it's got the lineage of parents uh, to King David. So they would have to know that. So it would be post-anointing of King David, but believed to be prior to his actual, like, crown on his head as king, because there isn't anything further regarding Solomon or his children. And so it's this, like, this book between this judge period to this king period. And it's so beautifully well written and how personal it is because within judges, it's this overall nation as a whole with Israel. And then it's brought to this like intimate personal relationship. It's just so symbolic and so beautiful as it is uh, very, very well written. And it came at a time when Israel was quite irresponsible, like a little bit extreme in its irresponsible living. Uh, It was dark days for the nation of Israel. There was lots of suffering uh, taking place, uh, which brings about lots of apostasy. And apostasy means abandonment or renunciation of religious or political beliefs. So it was this abandoning of their faith of their God, abandoning of the practices that the law had required of them, this abandoning or renunciating these beliefs. And there's lots of immorality happening in the nation of Israel. And due to this dark time, God had brought about a famine in the land as punishment. A famine in the land, war that takes place, is the ways that God brought about his punishment. And so here we have this setting of a land that is hungry. A nation that is starving and famished, and struggling, and questioning, and uncertain, and confused, and I feels like I'm losing my hope, and I feel like I should be doing this, but man, internally, I'm struggling. And doesn't that kind of sound like today, in our world? People who are like confused, and struggling, and renouncing faith, and feeling that they should, but internally they don't want to. And is he there? Is he not there? Does he listen? Is he willing? All that kind of stuff. And the book opens with this report of a famine 
in the nation of Israel, which drove out this family outside of Bethlehem, outside of the nation, to the neighboring one, Moab. And so we begin with Elimelech and Naomi, as they have traveled outside the nation to Moab, and they have camped there, and they had two sons, and disaster struck in the family. The father, the patriarch, dies. And all good stories have to start with some kind of, like, death. Right? Oh, dear. Bambi, yeah. (laughs) Bambi. (laughs) And so they leave the country, and, and, and I wonder the reasoning for leaving, right? Because in leaving... They're breaking some laws. And what took place with their sons and how they married Moabites breaks laws according to Scripture. So there was this renouncing of the law, living under the law, pushing it away, moving into this neighboring country, lifestyles change, and then death strikes this family. Elimelech passes away. And then the sons, they get married. And they marry these two women, Orpah. And Ruth, Ruth was the luckier one with the name. And they married these women. And then tragedy again strikes the family. Both husbands die. And there are this group of three women who have death and destruction and disaster in their life. In their life, everything of what they had for protection, everything of what they had for security, everything they had for provision was killed, was, was eliminated, was gone. Death stole it, stole them from these women. And so Naomi decides that it's time to go back to Israel. She heard that God had visited Israel again, and there is now food in the fields. And since her daughter-in-laws were young, she told them to just to go back home. And in verse 8 in chapter 1, it says, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. That you have shown to your late husbands and to me, you have shown kindness. So why don't you go back to your family? Go back to your mom and to your dad. And Orpah says, okay, and listens and hugs and then leaves. And then Ruth does the opposite and gives one of the most incredible speech. I just picture this in a movie. This is Hollywood cinema right here. She hugs Naomi and says this, don't urge me to leave. This is verse 16 of chapter one. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where I go or you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. What a, what a wonderful covenant that Ruth makes to Naomi. I'm committed. I'm loyal. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. And she shows this faithfulness and she shows this love and this kindness to Naomi by staying with her. And so they go back. They take the travel, the journey, and they get back into the land of Israel, back into Bethlehem. And people recognize Naomi. So she has been gone for a decade and comes back, a woman who has experienced death from both 
her husband and her boys experienced some real emotional trauma, some physical alterations from just the depression, the bitterness that has swept over her with all this death in her life. Coming back, people were like, hey, is that, is that Naomi? Like, I remember her, but she looks different. Is that the person who was here? Is that Elimelech's wife? And so they question and they wonder, you know somebody who just is without hope? Like it physically alters them. Have you ever experienced that? Where you just see someone age and they're just without hope. This is Naomi. To the point that she tells people to no longer call her Naomi. Because the meaning of the name Naomi is pleasant. She was no longer pleasant. She didn't live by the description of her name. She told people to call her Mara, which means bitter. I know. Imagine. Don't, don't call me by my name. Just call me bitter. I'm angry. I'm bitter about everything. She's bitter because she believed that the Lord's hand was against her. And some commentators will compare her and have compared her to that of Job, the female version of Job. So these two widows, Naomi and Ruth, are now back in the land of Israel. And... Uh, The author, the way that he sets this up, and we're going to get into chapter 2 here real quick. He sets it up like this. Even though there's food now in the land, right? There is now food. The famine is over. They don't have food. Like, we're talking in the cultural status of what they had going for them was absolutely nothing. The lowest of lows in the cultural standard at that time, and we'll get into this, is the widow, the orphan, or the alien. And they hit all of those. All of them, right? So here's the widow in both of them. Here's the orphan in Ruth that she has gone away from her family, has lost her father, has widowed, and also the foreigner in the land. So she's like, eh, got that, got that, got that. So here's these two women who are in a, a land where there is now food, but they have none to eat themselves. How are they going to be provided for? They don't own the land. Elimelech had land, but they don't have possession of that land. And we'll get into the kinsman redeemer part. And so the author sets this story up to have the reader ask the question, how are they going to make it? How are they going to do it? And so we start in uh, chapter 1, verse 22, and we'll go right into chapter 2. It says in verse 22, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, is that right? Or Moabitess? Moabitess. Her daughter-in-law arrived in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. And so here, we have this understanding that they are now back in Bethlehem. And the author says the barley harvest, which is the first harvest of the year. And here's a a season of famine, that they're coming back at just the right time, at the very beginning of the barley harvest, the first harvest of the year. Moves on to the fact that the author then just throws in, in 
verse 1 of chapter 2, this detail of this guy named Boaz, which was a relative to Elimelech, which is interesting because in a very good movie, right, a good movie will just throw these, like, hints at the beginning of the, like, show, which then will reveal itself later on in the episode. You know what I'm talking about? Like, well-written, well-written stories. So author's talking about this family, the death in this family, these women, the separation from Orpah from them, this love between Naomi and Ruth, this travel back to Israel, and then all of a sudden, here's a little taste of what's going to happen just down the road. Back to the conversation between Naomi and Ruth of, we got to find some food. And so Ruth asks Naomi, can I go glean? May I go glean? And she says, absolutely, go glean my daughter. Do you guys know what gleaning means? So gleaning means this. There was a law in Leviticus about harvesters. uh, And God had told harvesters through this law that they are to harvest whatever it was, barley in this situation. But as they harvested... They weren't to go back and re-harvest what they have already harvested. So if they were like pulling out and they missed a part or missed a few stalks or a section, they had to leave it. They couldn't like retrace their steps and go back as well. If they had their basket and it was kind of overflowing and some fell out onto the ground, they were not allowed to pick that up. They had to leave that there so that others could come and glean through. The people in which this law was created for was widows, orphans, and sojourners, travelers from outside the nation of Israel. But these three hit the lowest of low in the status of the nation of Israel. And so she would go and glean. So the laws were, if you harvest and miss a section or a couple or a few, you couldn't go back and harvest it. If you drop some, you had to leave it. As well, the corners and the edges of your field, you were not allowed to harvest, and that was left for people to go and to glean. Pretty amazing that God's provision through his law takes care of every single person. And so Ruth requests to go and to glean. And as she goes and she gleans, in verse 3, says this, So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And I love the part that it says, as it turned out. Like, just by chance, it just turned out that she happens to be in the field of Boaz, which is a relative to that of her late father-in-law. As it turns out, they just landed in Israel at the beginning of the barley harvest. As it turns out, this Moabitess knew of the law that God had provided for people who were widows and orphans and travelers to glean. As it turned out, she just went to this field that happened to be a relative of her late father-in-law. Isn't it amazing in this writing that God's provision isn't just by chance, right? You look at it, you're like, it's not just by chance as it happened. It had to be. It had to be planned. It had to be that God knew what he was doing in the process. Isn't it awesome how the author makes us think and question that his provision isn't just by hap happened, isn't just by chance, isn't just as it turned out. 
that there's something way deeper and way more that God is doing in this situation. And so Ruth here is active. She's active, knowing that things are stacked up against her, knowing that her situation truly is hopeless. She has no provider. She has only this way of feeding herself and her mother-in-law, who is now older in age, cannot work, that she has to go and collect the scraps that are up off the farm field for them to survive. She has no hope. She's lost. But she is active. She's active in her faith, that she knows even though her situation may be hopeless, she knows that there are promises in God's law that I'm going to act out on. And if I'm faithful in acting out on those promises from God's law, there may be something. Something that we can learn from that too. In situations that are hopeless, where I cannot see light at the end of the tunnel, to be active in my faith, to know God's word, to know promises and truths that come from scripture, and to act upon those even though I'm uncertain of what the future is going to hold. What an example for us to take as Ruth is active. Because often we do one of two things. If things seem hopeless or not going the way I want it to go, we can do one of two things, which the first one is we can grab a hold and try to do it all ourselves and, and micromanage everything and think I'm going to do it because God's not doing it for me is one way of doing it. Or the other way is like, oh, I'm just going to let go and let God, which doesn't even make sense. It's not even biblical. And I'm just going to let go and God's just going to take care of everything, right? And that's sort of a lazy mentality. But Ruth here is active in her faith, active in her work physically, with great faith, stepping out on promises and provisions of God's word, I think we can do the same. Because I believe God's provision often comes through us trusting him, being active, and taking a step of faith. God's provision comes through us trusting him, being active, and taking a step of faith. Verse 3. So she went out into this field, struck some luck, right? Not. We know that it didn't just happen as it turned out. That God's provision is larger than that. Verse 4 says this. Just then, just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? And the foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and was working steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Okay, so Boaz visits his field on this day. Just so happens that the day that Ruth is there, just so happens that Boaz visits the field that day, which was probably most likely uncommon for the owner of the field to visit. Now here is Boaz, a man of standing, right? He is not the regular, he's not the norm to begin with because he greets his employees. This blessing that he gives to his employees, the Lord 
be with you, we would not have been common amongst employers and employees. So he's this man of standing already, and he goes to his field. There's harvesters. There's workers. Clearly, there's a line of leadership of who has more responsibility than others. And then there's the gleaners. There would have been multiple gleaners. And with all those that are in his field, he just happens to notice her and ask his foreman about her. Isn't all these things just so beautiful, the way that the author had written this, to bring this all together? And that she's a hard worker, and they notice her work, and they notice how hard she works. Verse 8, love this. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Okay, we're talking culturally crazy what he just did radical what he just did. A story which is often talked about the love of a cross-cultural thing is Jesus and the Samaritan woman, right? How radical it was that he would talk to. This is to the same extent that Boaz would talk to a woman in his field, culturally, not the norm. That Boaz would talk to a foreigner in his field, culturally, would not happen. That he would tell this woman to go and get water from the men was culturally crazy at that time. Women did not go to men to get water from them. It was men who would go to women to be served by them from the water that they have prepared and collected. And he is saying to her, I have told my guys not to touch you. So it probably was culturally the norm for women to go to these fields and be abused and to be hurt. And he had said, I've told them not to touch you, but that you're to follow along and pick up what is needed and drink as much water from these men that you need. Culturally is crazy at this time. And the author is showcasing to his readers how radical, how crazy And amazing Boaz's love is to her at this time. Verse 10, she fell. Love this. She fell on her face. At at this, she bowed down. With her face to the ground, she exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? She fell on her face. Why why do you even see me? How, How come you are so kind to me? What is it that I have found favor in you? Notice that she doesn't say, which is culturally what we're taught today for specifically women, is today for women, it's taught to be an independent woman. That you don't need to rely on everybody else or anybody at the matter. That you are strong, independent women. I think there's strength that we need to teach for our women. But in the ways that we gain that strength is very different what our world teaches compared to what scripture teaches. Because culturally, we've got to be fed this independence where we don't ask. But here, the example of Ruth is that, well, why have I found favor in you? She knows her situation. 
is hopeless, that she's in need of help, and that she humbly accepts it. And I think there is strength and there is courage in women and in men when we can come to a place and say, I need some help, right? I think it takes more strength, and I think it takes more courage to get to a place to say, you know what? I don't have it all together, and I need to talk to somebody, and I need some help because I just can't do this on my own. And Ruth shows this strength that is so wonderful and so beautiful as the author writes this story. Verse 11. 11, 13, Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Another little like, all right, here we go. Wait till what happens next. I love this section in Boaz's response to Ruth falling on the floor and saying, how come I have found favor in you? Why have you shown me so much kindness? Because we love the damsel in distress stories where there's this big, muscular, heroic man that comes and saves the day. Well, we're not getting there. We're not going there. Because not only is Ruth amazed by the kindness that Boaz has shown her, Boaz reciprocates by saying, I have noticed how loyal, how good, how faithful, and how kind you have been to your mother-in-law. That you have been to the family of your late father-in-law. I have noticed it, what you have done. And so it isn't this damsel in distress that has nothing going for her except her looks and this muscular, heroic man that comes and saves and rescues. No, it's this Mutual relationship of respect and loyalty and kindness and favor to one another. What a great friendship. A friendship that is based upon kindness. A friendship that is based upon gentleness. A friendship that is based upon trust and of loyalty is where they began. What a beautiful picture of community and of friendship. Boaz speaks blessing over her. 14. Sorry, let me do 13 here. This is where he says his blessing. May I continue, or she says, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. Verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here. Have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some leftover. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Again, Boaz showing his kindness, his loyalty, his consistency, invites a foreign widowed woman to have dinner with him and his harvesters. Would have never happened. Would not have happened. 
invites her not only to come and eat, but she eats, and the way the author describes it and paints his picture is amazing. She ate, and there's food left over. So she had her fill. She had an abundance. She had more than what she needed was offered and was given to her. And then she went back to work because she is a hard worker. And he says to his men, make sure that you treat her right. Make sure that you provide a way that she can glean behind you. Says this, don't rebuke her. Don't embarrass her. He defends and he protects. Men, we are responsible to defend and protect the women in our lives. Not as the damsels in distress. We should never place them in that category. But as strong, humble people, we are to be humble and strong in our protection to them. We need more men like Boaz. We need more men like Boaz. That if we see relationships that are based on the fruit of anger or jealousy, of discord, of envy, of lust, of sexual immorality, to stand up, to defend and to protect. We need more men like Boaz. And I'm going to say this too, because I'm not trying to self-righteous us from those who deal with sin, because we all deal with sin. And so, men, we also need to defend women from ourselves at times too. We're all guilty of it. All right, back to the story. Just had to do it. Had to. He shows her his kindness, but he shows her his protection. That He is to defend her, to come and eat. Gave her all that she needed, plus more. Verse 17, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then, the, then she threshed the barley that she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah, about 30 to 40 pounds. She carried it back to town to her mother-in-law and saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough for dinner. Verse 19, her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So Naomi is unaware still at this point what field she went to and what, who the owner of this field was. She's amazed that she has come home with this big 40-pound bag. Again, Ruth is a hard worker. I don't know how far this distance was from the field to Naomi's house, but she had to carry this 40-pound sack of barley to this home. She had her left leftover container with her as well and brought that to Naomi and gave it to Naomi who could eat because this is from what I understand here the first day in which that she was gleaning so they probably had no food so Naomi was probably starving and here's Naomi who is bitter and angry about everything that's going on and all of a sudden Ruth walks in the door with this massive pound of wheat this leftover dinner eyes Where were you today? What did you do today? What a beautiful picture of Naomi going from this bitter, angry position of hopelessness and frustration to what just happened? God is still alive. He's still doing something. Who gave you this food? And so she tells her. She tells her. 
Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. Isn't this so romantic, right? The name of the man, and she like leads up to it, right? The author just leads up to it, extends it, and leads to this moment. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead. She added, this man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living, to you, and to the late passing of his relative. What a man of good standing. What a man of respect. What a man of kindness and goodness and gentleness in this man, Boaz. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of the just-so-happened events of life, the random, monotonous, day-to-day things that may happen, that God is at work in every single one of them. Just so happened that it was at the beginning of the barley harvest. It just so happened that she knew about this law in which that she could go glean food. It just so happened that she went to this field that Boaz owned. It just so happened that Boaz walked to that field to meet his employs it. It just so happened that he noticed her. It just so happened that he asked about her. It just so happened that he met her, talked to her, called her daughter, gave her a name of value and of importance. Just so happened that they had dinner together. Just, it's not just so happened. It's God clearly at work in every step of this story. His provision is so wonderful. Is so good. The remaining parts of this story, chapters three and four, we're not going to specifically go through tonight. I encourage you to take a read through this beautiful story. In chapter three, there's this romantic relationship that starts to build, this interest in one another. And uh, at the end of chapter two here, the last scripture verse talks about that um, she had been, maybe not the last one, but she had been working in the field uh, until the end of the harvest season. So the harvest season would have been about three to four months. So she had been there for a while. And so there was this time in which that doesn't talk into detail, but I'm certain that they were in communication with one another. And this friendship, this trust was built between the two of them and began this courting by Ruth to Boaz. And uh, she has... Really, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about how to court, about how to get a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And Ruth gives an example here that I would never encourage any woman to do whatsoever in trying to find a guy. So here's the seven-step plan in chapter 3 that Ruth did to court Boaz, okay? And Naomi gave some advice to this. So this is generation passed down of advice on how to get a man. First one is to wash up. So Ruth washes up. She cleans herself, okay? That's the first one. Women, if you want a guy, wash up, okay? Second is this. Put on perfume, okay? Put on perfume. So Ruth puts on perfume, okay? The next step is put on some nice clothes. So Naomi tells her to wash up, put on perfume, put on some nice clothes. Three pretty good steps so far in the... uh courting a man. The next one I think is a really good one too. Uh, Wait till he finishes eating and drinking so he'll be in good spirits after a good mood. Okay? 
So if you're interested, make sure he's got a full belly, because the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, okay? Make sure he's got a good, full belly. Then step five, this is really important. The next one, okay? Scope out. This isn't what scripture says. This is my rendition. Scope out and stake out where he sleeps at night, okay? (laughs) You got to find out where he sleeps at night, but don't let him know that you're doing this because that's creepy, okay? Then while he's asleep, while he's asleep, in the middle of the night, lay at the foot of his bed and uncover his feet from under the blankets, Okay? <laughs> Uncover his feet from his slumber. And if you do so, that is the universal sign that you are interested in him. Okay? <laughs> because if he wakes up, he'll be in love and he'll propose to you. Okay? <laughs> But here's the thing. (laughs) This is what Ruth does. This is what Ruth does. And the way that the author writes this story, again, it's highly symbolic. It's very historical. It's very historical, but it's also highly symbolic. It's Ruth saying to Boaz, weird that it's at night and weird that it's like to uncover his feet. Okay. But back in chapter two, okay, Boaz says to Ruth, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Yes, spiritually God, but also physically by a man. Under whose wing is she going to take refuge? Under which person is she going to find refuge? Because she's still still is culturally down at this place. So Naomi has this field that she has no, it's, it's like a frozen asset. Elimelech would have had this field as he passed away. Their property was still there. Naomi and Ruth are a part of this property. It's terrible. I get this in our culture today. It's hard for us to understand, but they were a part of the property. They had no ability to take the property for themselves to gain any income. It just, they were attached to it and it was a frozen asset. And so the kinsman redeemer had the ability as a close relative to purchase this property and to take for him the family, in this case, the women, Naomi being too old, so therefore Ruth, as his wife, under his wing, under his protection, under his care. But there was a guideline for a kinsman redeemer. The guideline was this. First, they had to be a close relative. They had to be related. Second, they had to have the means in which to be able to pay for the land. They had to have the financial ability to make the payment. And then third, they had to be willing. And so Boaz, being the gentleman in which he is, makes sure that the next morning, as Ruth was lying at the foot of his bed, to make sure that she had some food to go with her and to walk out and to make sure that his men would not harass her, that she would not be embarrassed to go back to glean. And he said, I'm going to make sure that you are redeemed. And, but there was a roadblock that took place first. There was a person who was actually close, closer related than Boaz himself was to Naomi. And so he couldn't just go redeem her. 
he had to actually go through the proper channels. He was a man of good character and of good standing and did not want to cheat the system. And so he goes and he finds men uh, in the city near the gate uh, to take in this conversation. And he talks to the person who is a closer relative and says, you have the opportunity to be the kinsman redeemer to these women and to this land. And the guy said no, because he knew that if he was to take on the assets of this field to pay for it, he had the means. He was a closer relative. But if he were to take on the assets of this field, including the women, and if he were to bear children with them, his uh, inheritance would have to be spread thin amongst his kids. And so he didn't want that. So he said no. There has to be a willingness on the kinsman redeemer to redeem a person. And so Boaz says, okay. And I'm going to do it. And their sign was to take off their sandal. And that was like their sign of like, all right, transaction confirmed. And so he takes his sandal off. (laughs) I'm going to invite the team to come on back up onto stage. And this picture of just crazy love and of kindness, where there is these women who, their story is our story. Like, it's all of our stories. And the author takes this stature of these women, which was the lowest of lows, and so it wasn't like we could say, oh, man, it, like, it's, they're above me, so I can't do it. it. And it's not that they are below because they're equal, but in the context of the culture and their status, they were considered the lowest of the low. And so we can all find ourselves to mirror that and to replicate that and to see that in our own stories. That God in this picture, through the picture of Boaz, redeeming these women, yep, because he was a relative, yes, because he had the means, but because he was so in love and so willing that he wanted to do it. That's our God. That's our Savior who has the means, who is closer than a brother but has such the desire and love to look down upon you and to love you and to show kindness and to show mercy and to show gentleness and I want to finish with this scripture and I encourage you to stand with me as we read it it's a scripture that we went through uh, in pre-service prayer tonight and it's out of Titus chapter 3 It says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness of love, kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. God cares about your relationships. God cares about your friendships. God cares about how you treat people. And he has shown us everlasting love and everlasting kindness 
that he came down here to this world and through the washing of rebirth, I love that language, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, that as we do good and as we care for others, go against the hatred and the malice and the discord and the jealousy, but move towards love and joy and patience and goodness and gentleness and kindness and self-control, that it's profitable for us. It's good for us. It's good for our souls. It's good for that inner part of us. The washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so tonight what we want to do is we want to give you the opportunity. Maybe you need to be renewed tonight. Maybe you need the Holy Spirit to renew you, to refresh in you again his love, to refresh, to renew in you again his kindness and his goodness. And sitting in his presence is such a wonderful thing. So we're going to sing about that. And my prayer for you is that you'd be renewed as you're in his presence tonight. Renewed in the depth of who you are, so then the attributes of what will come out will be love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and the rest. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture, this relationship of Boaz and Ruth, this relationship of you and me, of you and us, we can all put ourselves into this story. Thank you, Lord, that you took the picture of the judges and the overall desire of you to be with your people into this personal, intimate relationship between a man and his bride. And it's the picture of you as our Savior and your bride, us, that you so love and so desire to be with. And Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your spirit. And tonight, as we conclude here in a little bit, we we don't want to miss this opportunity to be renewed and refreshed by you, Holy Spirit. As we continue to dive in to see what it means to walk in step with you, we need to be renewed again tonight. So we lay ourselves before you and say, have your way. Have your way in our lives. I encourage you, if you want to come to the front, you can come to the front. If you want to stay where you're at, stay where you're at. But let's sing about being in the presence of the Holy Spirit and allow him to renew inside of you his love.